Welcome to Insurrection, an American slavery podcast. I'm your host, Alejandra Aguirre, and today's episode is Resisting the Fugitive Slave Act. We'll be exploring the political importance of slave resistance, specifically in regards to the Fugitive Slave Act, as well as its impact on legislative change. Using the case study of the Oberlin Wellington rescue, we'll look into how solidarity and collective resistance expedited Civil War tensions. NAACP co-founder W.E.B. Du Bois once wrote that it was, quote, the Black worker who brought about the Civil War in America. This quote really struck me when I was reading James Oak's piece on the history of slave resistance. It essentially translates to this notion that slavery and collective resistance were present in various ways, micro and macro. You had everyday micro-level resistance, where slaves would engage in behaviors to inconvenience their masters, faking illness, breaking tools, stealing, messing with the overseer-slash-slave-master tensions. Then there was more active resistance. Think macro-level. Running away, striking the overseer or master, and, in extreme cases, joining organized rebellions. Interestingly, this concept of organized rebellions is what inspired this podcast's name, Insurrection. When you think of it, slave resistance was a controversial issue. For abolitionists, this resistance was justified in the name of higher law, while Confederates viewed these acts as reprehensible. When the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was adopted, this heightened violent tensions. The act allowed for the arrest and return of alleged fugitive slaves within the U.S., According to LeBay, it empowered slave catchers to make arrests based on the slave master's, quote, power of attorney and a simple ex parte document from Southern court. There was also the monetary incentive. Wanted slaves were stamped with a reward. Perhaps one of the most, if not the most, followed fugitive slave trials was the Oberlin Slave Rescue. It tells a thrilling story of interracial cooperation that often becomes romanticized by history accounts. Jamel Bowie and Rebecca Onion cover this concern in Runaway Railroad, the eighth installment in the History of American Slavery Slate podcast. While their focus is on the mythicized Underground Railroad, they tackle why certain aspects of American slavery are romanticized. This includes the Oberlin Rescue. Simply put, it's easier to tell the stories of those who left records and got a happy ending, who ended up free. Bowie and Onion go deeper into this by bringing on historians like Northwestern law professor Stephen Lubay, who explains how the history actually went. With this, it's important to acknowledge that much of Civil War slash antebellum history is told from the white abolitionist perspective. Whether purposeful or not, they painted themselves as these white heroes assisting helpless Blacks. Much of this can be attributed to the late 19th and early 20th century works of Ohio State University professor Wilbur Siebert. He wrote several books based on these questionnaires distributed to aging white abolitionists, which inadvertently led to this, quote, gap in the slavery literature. Until the 1960s, that is. It was only with the publishing of scholar Larry Gara's Liberty Line, 1960, that the gaps in Sieber's work were found. Mainly in regards to Sieber's claims of slave resistance slash escape, cough cough, Underground Railroad, being a highly organized system. Newsflash, it really wasn't. Yet, while most credit should be given to slave escapees themselves, 
the joint effort of mutual resistance should also be considered. Not only because it tells a beautiful story of interracial cooperation, but because it played a vital role in Civil War politics. And with that, we move back to the Oberlin Wellington Slave Rescue. In this portion of the podcast, we'll be drawing from two publications. Stephen Lubay's 2011 research paper entitled The Oberlin Fugitive Slave Rescue, One Small Victory for Higher Law and the Oberlin Heritage Center website. In the early 19th century, Oberlin was a hub for fugitive slaves and boasted itself as being one of the most integrated and abolitionist U.S. cities. Today, it's associated with prestigious Oberlin College. Founded in 1831, Oberlin College was a pioneer in integrative co-education and welcomed African-American students as early as its second year of operation. With the population so committed to slave resistance, slave catchers seldom attempted to target Oberlin. Hence, it was no surprise that the 1858 kidnapping of black man John Price would attract quite the commotion. In early 1856, the city took the fugitive Kentuckian as a poor stranger. Lubay describes Price as having arrived starving and penniless, but Oberlin did not care and even offered their public support. For the next two years, Price lived quietly as a farm laborer until a case of mistaken identity blew his cover. Kentucky slave hunter Anderson Jennings targeted him as the likely property of his neighbor, John Bacon, back in uh, Mason County, Kentucky. Unwilling to return empty-handed, he was actually looking for another slave named Henry, Jennings scoured Oberlin for any probable runaways. This is quite interesting because it speaks to that two-sided perspective, how maybe some slave hunters were seeking actual fugitives out of their own pride and to fulfill some sort of honor code, but others might have just been willing to capture any Black person and claim them as a fugitive slave for that reward money. Bacon headed back to the Mason County Circuit Court and got Jennings a power of attorney documentation to capture Price. Bacon also granted this authority to another slave hunter, Richard Mitchell, and the plan to capture Price and deliver him to Jennings in Ohio started. With the help of a few pro-slavery locals, the posse lured Price out of Oberlin on September 13, 1858. The plan was for this trio, which consisted of Mitchell and two other law officers, Jacob Lowe and Samuel Davis, to meet Je Jennings in Wellington, Ohio, uh, and then catch a train to Columbus, and then to Kentucky. The kidnapping caught the attention of Oberliners and resulted in this tense standoff. The rescuers got Price back and carried them on their backs, and... From then on, uh, Price was able to make this valiant escape um, and live the rest of his life in anonymity in Canada. Oberlin's celebrations were short-lived, though. Once the rescuers' trials began, 37 were charged and two acquitted, both black and white. These orders came from the then James Buchanan administration. Its 1856 campaign was based on a pro-Southern platform. So Oberlin's lack of compliance to the Fugitive Slave Act was seen as violating Southern rights. The key figure here is Charles Langston, 
the one black man who was acquitted. He was a mediator during the standoff, but he's also often considered the, quote, leader of the Oberlin rescuers, even though for the most part, the mob was kind of leaderless. His trial served as a victory for the higher law. This higher law ideal had been built up throughout the 1850s for the Fugitive Slave Act, but never was used as a legal defense in courts until Langston came along. We have to give major props to Langston's defense attorney for this tactic, as it made the all-white jury reconsider their stance. Langston simply couldn't be convicted. It would be a blow to Ohio's free Black population and demonstrate that even nonviolent resistance to the Fugitive Slave Act would be punished. But ultimately, Langston was convicted, but not before uh, refuting that he was not apologetic for his involvement and stating that he did intend to continue rescuing slaves. And that was why the Oberlin trials were a victory for higher law. Civil disobedience was, for the first time, partially legitimized as a valid form of resistance against the Fugitive Slave Act. As for the Oberlin-Wellington rescues legacy, let's just say it wasn't forgotten. Heck, it was even being talked about some 50 years later. The Ohio Farmer newspaper discusses it in their June 12, 1920 issue. Writer W.I. Chamberlain is quoted as saying, it is an episode in the great anti-slavery fight in which every youth now ought to know about. Even more fascinating is that this issue recounts exchanges of people who partook in the actual event itself. In this case, William Bracey of District No. 5, who gives a basic rehash of the summary we've provided above through a series of letters to a family friend. Key to understanding the politics of the Oberlin-Wellington rescue, though, is this concept of states' rights, which comprises our last part of the episode. When discussing the Civil War, states' rights are often seen as a Southern phenomenon, but this really isn't the case as seen with the Fugitive Slave Act. For the North, there was this real concern in the South utilizing this legislation as a means of expanding their federal power, while the South viewed the Fugitive Slave Act as a point of honor and thought that Northern cooperation was key to ensuring successful participation in the Union. It's important to consider the impact of slave resistance in hastening the Civil War, once again giving importance to rebellions and rescues like that in Oberlin. This all culminated with South Carolina's declaration of secession from the Union on December 20th, 1860. Their rationale was that the U.S. Constitution had been compromised by the non-slaveholding states' refusal to respect Southern states' pro-slavery rights. In other words, the Southerners wanted states' rights for their own states, not the Northern states. And this is where confusion regarding states' rights often occurs. In the preceding decades, especially throughout the 1850s, Southern leaders rallied for the Northern state's support in enforcing the Fugitive Slave Act. That is to say, the South wanted the North to change their own state laws so that Southerners could travel up with slaves up North without worrying about the slaves having to be taken. Finkelman, 2011, laments on how this came into conflict with the North's uh, personal liberty laws, which were designed to prevent the kidnapping or removal of free Blacks. 
These state laws gave precedence over the Federal Fugitive Slave Act of 1793, which frustrated Southerners to no end. The issue of state laws would be highlighted in the Oberlin Trials, where the constitutional provisions for separate state and federal authorities allowed for the North, Ohio, to decline complete cooperation with the South state rights regarding slavery, in this case with Kentucky. And that's it for today's episode, folks. Thank you again for tuning in to Insurrection. I hope you enjoyed this one, and stay tuned for next episodes, where we'll be covering the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment. This is Alejandra, signing off.